and welcome to APQC's podcast. Um, this is a podcast series that kind of coordinates with our APQC pro I'm going to start over. All right. I don't know why I'm Hello and welcome to APQC's podcast. Um, today's podcast is uh, hosted by some of our APQC employees here. And it follows up a webinar that we had on September 24th of this year. Um, so on September 24th, APQC's Ron Webb, Executive Director of Open Standards Benchmarking, Staff Hub and Information Systems, and Christy Arugula, the Senior Research Statistician, um, conducted a webinar that explored our methodology for driving decision-making processes um, and performance benchmarking data. We also have on the webinar here is Holly Lyke-Hogland. Holly is our research program manager for the Process and Performance Management Group. So what today's uh, podcast is going to do is basically going to take the questions that uh, we didn't have time to answer in our last podcast um, and answer them in this format here. It will also be answered in a document format that will be added to our knowledge base. So um, with that, I want to thank Holly and Ron and Christy for joining us today. And I'll just jump in with the questions, and then you guys can answer um, in the order that you want or whoever you think should take it. So uh, let's start with the first one. Do you, have any benchmark do you have any benchmarking for cycle time, cost, and customer retention for innovation or new product delivery? I'll take a shot at that one. This is Ron. Uh, Yes, you know, from I'll, ask, I'll answer it in a general sense, and then I'll answer it in a more specific sense, uh, and why it's important that you look at cost uh, and cycle time and the types of metrics you should look at related to processes, and it's because of that. But these are related to processes. So when we look at metrics related to how processes work, our key factors are cost, cycle time, and then staff productivity. Sometimes we'll have a category of other. Uh, and th those metrics and the data in that category will vary depending on the process we're looking at. So we have, uh, in our open standard benchmarking uh, research area, we have uh, surveys and assessments focused on innovation and uh, product delivery, and we will capture data related to cost cycle time and the productivity of those processes. Uh, specifically around customer retention, we may or may not uh, capture those types of metrics depending on the process and whether that's a relevant metric for that process. So at the end of the day, we capture the metrics that are relevant to that process in those general categories of cost, cycle time, and productivity. Great. Thanks. Christy or Holly, do you all have anything to add to that? I think Ron got it uh, effectively. All right. So the next one is, if one implements multiple strategies, such as the case study, how can you determine the contribution of each to the cumulative position upon implementation of all? Also, how do you look at interactions between strategies to determine the best outcome? Uh, I'll take that one. <laughs> uh, so the case study, it, it basically comes back to your research question, which is why we focused most of the webinar on research methodology. So if your question is, what is the impact of each strategy in isolation on its own. So suppose an organization implements one strategy and they want to understand the impact of that strategy on cycle time, you would test it with one type of statistical model. Um, and then if your research question was different and you're asking, well, we're going to, our organization is planning to implement two or three of these strategies, what's the impact? Then you would do a different type of modeling. 
So that gets back to that point of it's important to determine your research methodology and your research questions because that's what drives your analytics and your modeling and all the decisions that you need to make. That's how you would test it. If you have a, a model with multiple strategies, at the end you would be able to say once you run your stats, you would get an answer of which of these strategies have the most impact given that I have two or three or four um, in place at my org. Holly, you can add. Um, one question on that, especially if I'm looking at stuff like looking at multiple variables, a lot of times I tend to do multiple regressions because that will help show you the interaction between each of the variables and then it will show you what percentage each one is you're looking at, see what percentage of the total change in what you're looking at is. Um, and if you want to get a little bit more clear on that, you can do a stepwise, which makes it easier. And all a stepwise does is it puts variable one in the model and then variable two in the model and then variable three in the model so you can see the difference and the change when you add each one of those strategies. Great. Thank you. Okay. The third one that we have here, given the dozens of processes and hundreds of activities, how do you select which processes will yield the greatest return on investment and performance improvement? What diagnosis tools can be applied for process selection with regard to performance improvement? I'll take a shot at that one and then you guys can jump in. Um, you know, this is where, you know, I, I'm obviously familiar with the methodology that we use in statistics, uh, but a lot of times what happens when we work with clients is they get lost in the data and they get lost in um, the fact that they have data and they want the data to tell them the answer. And so my answer to that question is you don't rely on the data to start off with to tell you where you need to focus. This is where you need to have people that are subject matter experts and very, very familiar with the process that you're trying to analyze and understanding the process you're trying to analyze and how that relates to a business outcome. And you can go through and use you know, statistical methods to help you identify areas you might want to focus on, but we seldom ever take that approach because what you want to do is not have the data give you the answer. Because at the end of the day, if you could run statistical analysis to make the decision on what strategy to implement, you don't need people to go do that. And if you're in a business that is, can be so automated, you need to be in that business. But we tend to work in organizations where the data is a supporter of making decisions. And our goal is to give the people that work in that organization the information that they need in a valid and reliable way that will help them determine which strategy to take. So to answer this question, if there were hundreds of activities and you know tons and tons of uh, processes, you sit down with the people that work in that organization and say, what does your experience tell you you would expect to see? And that turns into your research questions. Those turn into your hypotheses. And then you collect data uh, around those processes and the outcomes of those processes. And then the business outcomes or the ROI in this question um, and how you're going to calculate that and then you apply the statistical tests that lend themselves to giving you the answer based on what you're asking, uh, the what type of analysis you need. So the data and the, the types of statistical methods that you use and the actual tests that you run, those don't lead the process. The process should be led by subject matter experts and people with experience in that organization and in those processes in that organization. Anything that you guys add? I'd say the one thing I have to add is, especially if you're talking about identifying which processes you need to focus on for, 
performance improvement. It's just that it's the people who run the processes. It's the executive team. Um, one of the things that we suggest companies do as far as process management goes is categorize the processes. So about 20% of your processes are going to be ones that are strategic in nature. So those are the ones that create a competitive advantage or are something that your clients really value. So those are the ones you're going to prioritize above everybody else. And those are the ones that are also going to give you the largest performance improvement. Then from there, you go into the core ones that kind of support those strategic ones. And then from that, you also then have the bottom layer ones, which are the infrastructure, which are the same process that looks the same no matter what industry you're in or what company you're in. Um, and that's another way of identifying which levers to pull. Sure. And, you know, it, related to that, it can also be uh, driven by business model or their strategy in the marketplace. Uh, as we talked about a little bit on the webinar, if an organization, if what they care about is getting product to customers fast because that's what they're known for and that's their brand in the marketplace and that's what they want to protect, they probably want to look at the processes that facilitate them getting product to market fast. Whereas if they're known as you know, a niche player or a, a high value player because of the quality of what they deliver to the marketplace, they would want to start with looking at processes and analyzing data related to those processes that drive quality of their product because that's what the customers know them for. Because at the end of the day, you want to drive revenue, you want to decrease cost, you want to gain market share, you want to retain customers. Those are the big high-level business outcomes that most organizations care about. And knowing your processes and being able to categorize processes in that way and then uh, tying that back to this type of analysis is what this methodology is all about. It's doing data analysis targeted to the things that make you beat your competition in the market that you want to beat your competition in. Yeah, uh, the only thing I would add to that is just kind of reinforcing what you just said. With the, that's the point of the methodology and if we call it value path analysis or this research methodology tool that we've been uh, we presented at the webinar, it comes back to um, um, identifying what you're interested in and then working your way through that methodology, it helps you focus and make those decisions of which process you know, do I need to measure, which metrics am I going to use. It moves you through all the critical decisions so that at the end you have uh, a very aligned, uh, streamlined research project with valid results at the end. Great. Good question. All right, let's move on to how many data points do you need for statistical tests? Does this differ between continuous and discrete variables? <laughs> so that that question is, uh, you know, I can give a general rule of thumb would be at least sample size of 30, but it varies based on basically so many things about your project. What is your question? What does your data look like? What tests are you using? So for certain tests, for certain statistical tests, the sample size can be different. You could have unequal groups, equal groups. There's uh, fancier types of stats where you can actually generate, um, you know, simulated data and, and do analysis. So it's kind of a, a, a broad range of things, of possibilities. So I think rather than giving a general answer, you can say 30, but definitely you would want to follow up with the specifics of your project and your data set. I don't know, do you have anything to add? The one thing I'd add in context then also is if you're running analysis and you've got multiple variables that you're running analysis in, the more variables you've got that you're comparing, the higher your, your, end, your 
sorry, data point, not end value, <laughs> needs to be, um, because each one then can be taken in a, as its own category. Yeah, because that's, you know, to kind of echo that in a different way, a lot of times we'll ask customers, uh, or customers will ask us to look at data, and they'll uh, say, oh, we got a sample size of 100, but then they want to look at, let's say, the influence that industry has on the outcome. And when you take that data set, you then parse it by industry, they have two industries with, you know, 75 uh, organizations in it, and the rest of their industries all have two or three. And that weakens the analysis when you have to, when you have one or two of your cohorts or your categories that are driving, that contain most of your, your data points. And so it really comes down to the type of analysis and the type of project that you're doing. Yeah. Uh, but the more variables, the more data you're going to need at the end of the day. Okay. One of the common challenges across all levels of an organization is ensuring employees know how to conduct and interpret statistical analysis. How does APQC's methodology address this challenge? I'll take a shot at that one first, and then obviously you guys can chime in. Uh, the, the first way I'll answer that is what we were talking about earlier with doing a value uh, path analysis and, and linking the outputs of these processes to these business outcomes that everybody understands. Because just by default, when you do that, you're putting the data in a context that the employees should understand. If they're in an organization that's always talking about, you know, we win in the marketplace because we get product to market fast or we have high quality products, and you're helping them understand how this data can help them determine what to do with resources or how to focus their work, you're putting the data that, and the analysis that you're doing into the context they already understand. And at the end of the day, that's what this methodology tries to do because uh, I'll kind of, you know, argue with the question a little bit that uh, ensuring employees know how to conduct and interpret statistical analysis, I don't think is something that you're going to be successful in if you're going to expect employees to conduct statistical analysis. There's a group of employees out there that are analysts, obviously, that can do this, you know, with their eyes closed. But the reason that we developed this methodology, and I think what separates uh, the way we approach it from other organizations, is we take that out of the mix, that we, we know this methodology works. And what I need the employee of the organization to do is bring their expertise and understanding of how they operate and how these processes relate to business outcomes and trust that we know how to go do the statistical analysis. And then when we give it back to them, they know that because of the type of organization APQC is and the type of methodology that we use, uh, they're going to get valid, reliable results. So all they need to do is then be able to see the outcomes as they relate to what they asked us to go examine because they're the people that are experts of their organization and of their marketplace. And then we're giving them simple, easy to interpret and most of the time uh, statistical outputs understand what decisions they need to go make. So they don't have to deal with any of all of the footnotes at the bottom of those charts and graphs. They, they don't have to deal with those. They just know they're right because we have a tried true methodology in doing that. Um, partially playing devil's advocate, your devil's advocate. But with, the, with all the inputs of big data and the drive to be more analytically driven, do you see that more employees are going to have to at least be passingly familiar with your basic staff? Yeah, this is a debate Chris and I have all the time. Um, and, you know, because one of the big trends in the marketplace are software packages that are trying to do all of the 
the work that our methodology does. And I think that is ultimately going to end up doing more harm than good because it's really, really sketchy to assume that a software package and somebody that doesn't understand statistical methods or is trained in statistics is going to know that the t-test or this type of regression or that type of whatever statistical tool they want to use is the right one based on the type of data they have and the question they're trying to ask of the data. That's asking an awful lot of a tool and I think that you have to have, you know, an analyst that understands this that can bridge that gap between the data and the analysis and the context of the organization and it's really, really going to be tough unless you train those people and you know, in both sides of that equation to be able to do that and do it well and not be worried about how they're applying all these, all the tools and interpreting the results. So is this a debate that you and Christy have the same opinion on? Um, I tend to play devil's advocate more than she does. <laughs> because it, and the reason is that if, if history shows us anything, uh, tools win a lot. Uh, technical tools win a lot. And there's a lot of software packages that are out there, you know, with machine learning and with, you know, they're starting to talk about artificial intelligence and the fact that they're just algorithms that somebody created as a part of a cloud offering that you just put your customer SAP data in or you put your customer retention data in. And there may be some areas that are so standardized uh, that, that you can do that and you can have, you know, because the, the algorithms are pretty similar when you look at customer retention data. Um, but and, and this is usually Christie's point, is that that's about where that ends. When you start getting really contextual and really complex with how these business processes, like an operational process and how that relates and the context you need to have to understand which tests to use and how to develop research questions and how to develop hypotheses that make sense in that setting, it gets, that gets really, really suspect really, really quick. Yeah, I, I would actually divide it, I mean, following up on what you said, I would divide it into different categories. So I think there's research methodology, which is what the webinar mostly focused on, and that I think, you know, at any org, everybody should have a passing understanding of what are the key parts of research methodology. Like, what, what's the research question, how would you put together what you're interested in, and, and what deserves um, money and budget and things like that. Separately is the staff part of it. And that I would divide into two. There's the basic descriptive stats, which again, I think even if you have no background, you can learn some basic testing and basic things. I think what Ron was getting at is when you get into the advanced level, that really would help an organization make decisions of where to um, invest resources. That's where you want to um, either invest in an analyst or hire somebody or hire an organization to uh, who's qualified and understands all those decisions and implications. So I think there's different sets of uh, information and then you want uh, different people to have, you know, understanding of different things. And I'm going back to the question then, our uh, methodology we're talking about then is kind of a tool then to help the analysts and your business people speak the same language. Right. And that's the, the major value of it. Yeah, that, that's the way I explain it is it's kind of the Rosetta Stone mm -hmm. that, that allows you to interpret organizational processes and their relationship to business outcomes in a way that effectively uses the time of the people that work in the world of the business and the process and they don't know stats and they don't need to know stats to a great degree yeah. with people that sit on the statistical side that 
aren't going to have the context of that organization and you can't spend enough time teaching a statistical analyst all the things they need to know about that process because you've been in that process in that organization for 20 years. Yeah. And so you have to have some way to talk to both sides of that and that's what this methodology does. Yeah, it really pools that expertise of an SME and an analyst and pulls their expertise together so that you have good results. And at where we found the best results in using this is where you have that access and it's very iterative because you know, the projects that we've done where it's been kind of, you know, you have the planning in the beginning of the project and then you get your research questions, your hypothesis, and you go off and you collect data, you come back and do analysis. Those we get good results with, but it usually at some point in time projects got to get real iterative where you look at it and you go, oh, you know, I know those were the research questions and hypothesis we wanted to start with and find on the statistical side that it doesn't explain enough of the influence. And so what you've got to do is go back and say, well, if we didn't explain enough of the impact these processes are having on this outcome, why might that have happened? And you go through the process again. Or you start getting those results and the subject matter experts goes, I love this. Now it's opening up this whole different set of questions for me and we need you to go through the process again with a new set of research questions, new hypothesis and, get, and gather new data. And then there might be a totally different approach and set of tests that you run against that. And those are the processes or the projects that we do where I think we get the best results because it's getting that information in the hands of the people that know how to use it quickly and it's doing it in an iterative way where it's not so static. Anything else, Holly? No? All right. Well, let's move on to the next one. Um, do any of you have any advice on ways to conduct effective industry benchmarking, e.g. Uh, the SCORE model tools? All right. Um, to give some context to the SCORE model and what that is, is it's a uh, supply chain, basically operating framework or process framework. So it describes the processes an organization would use in their supply chain area. Um, so I see two questions in that, one being effective industry benchmarking. And industry is always a cohort that every organization that benchmarks wants to look at. That's usually the first question. Uh, is I want to see how I can compare to my industry peers. So we definitely benchmark uh, any time that we can against industry peers because that's the frame of reference most people have. I would assert to you that when you're doing process-based benchmarking, industry to, for the most part is irrelevant unless there's something related to that industry that makes an organization operate in a specific way. I know that a bank operates differently than um, an auto manufacturer when it comes to how they you know, develop products and deliver those to the market. Uh, but when you're looking at organizational processes, you want to look at the outcomes of those processes and benchmark those outcomes. So for instance, in the space of procurement or in the space of payroll and in those process areas, I think you're going to be better uh, equipped to make decisions if you look at organizations that have processes to the same scale that you have. So as it relates to process benchmarking with industry peers, um, as it in, in the procurement process area, if your industry peers are only issuing, you know, 10,000 purchase orders a year, but you're issuing and having to deal with 1 million purchase orders a year, I'd rather go talk to other organizations and benchmark with other organizations that are having to execute a million purchase orders as opposed to my industry peers if they're one-tenth of the scale of what I'm doing because those processes in procurement have to perform differently because of the volume that comes through those. And that is the driver of that process, not necessarily the fact that 
is company A was also, uh, you know, in the same industry as me and may have the same NAICS code or the same industry label next to their data. Um, so that's the first part of that question. The second part of that question, because uh, they referenced the SCORE model, and I think process frameworks are critical to doing benchmarking as well as doing the type of analysis that we talked about in the webinar because it gives you the parameters of your process. It gives you endpoints, gives you beginning points, endpoints. It helps you understand when you get a cycle time or a cost measure that you're getting apples to apples comparison as best you can. So I definitely think using process frameworks and using the metrics that are aligned with process frameworks whenever you're doing benchmarking or uh, this type of statistical approach to understanding the outcomes of processes and how they drive the business, I definitely will recommend doing that. Okay. The APQ drove me, feels like I have to put a plug in here. Uh, the process classification framework APQ's format is actually a really good model for this because um, the ID numbers that you see for each one of those processes in the PCS correlate to a benchmark that we have in the OSB data. So it makes it very easy to do exactly what you were just talking about, being able to find that discrete process that you're looking at and then identify the most common metric that you can then benchmark across. And then you can also cut it by industry versus non-industry. Um, the question about also I think is a point as far as looking specifically at industry benchmarking is industry benchmarking is perfect for a lot of things. However, if it's say strategic or one of those top areas that you really want to be able to push the margins on, uh, strategic processes you'd also, we should consider looking at the adjacent industries as well. Because their processes are going to be similar to yours, but they may have a different way of looking at it. That'll give you an advantage. Yeah, I definitely think, at least in my view, when you're looking at benchmarking a process, you want to look at organizations that have, that their process has the same characteristics as your process. And their organization may have the same similar characteristics as your organization, regardless of what their industry is. Then looking at, you know, your, your data compared to industry peers, there's nothing wrong with that. And that's what most people use as a frame of reference. But when you're looking at how you operate, you want to look at organizations that operate in a similar way or in an adjacent way so you can learn, you know, do a different ways of thinking about how you could approach a problem. Anything else to add, Christy? Anybody? All right. <clears throat> so the next question is, how is the effectiveness or outcomes of this methodology measured? You know, the way that I'll answer that is um, I measure the effectiveness uh, and the outcome of this methodology as to whether it gives the customer, and that customer sometimes is an APQC member and that customer a lot of times is APQC, does it give them the information that they need to better make their decision? So, you know, the first, you know, the, the first section of the webinar is where we talk about the difference between descriptive statistics and uh, the results of this type of analysis and more statistical analysis. That when you use descriptive statistics and you just describe the population uh, that you collected data from or you describe the process as opposed to looking at really hard metrics and looking at the relationships between inputs and outcomes, uh, you can show those descriptive statistics to a group of 10 people and you're going to have 10 different interpretations of that data because that's what you give them. It's basically just fodder for thought, uh, general direction, and you end up with, you know, the potential for different strategies being 
you know, used to try and tackle the same problem. Whereas when you look at um, the statistical analysis and the outputs of this methodology, it gives them an understanding of the influence of each of the variables you're looking at on the decision that they want to make. So it goes through the thought process of, of using the research questions and the hypothesis to frame the decisions that need to be made uh, related to the project that we're doing. And so when you get the outcome, you get the outcome. And you understand if you take option A, that it's going to have an 83%, you know, uh, it's going to have an influence of 83% to get you to, you know, whatever the outcome is versus option three that may be a 42% or a 24%. But you're going to know that that is a statistically valid result. And it's going to, you can still choose to go with whatever option you want to go with. But you're at least making that with a lot more rigorous of an answer than just looking at descriptive stats or getting in a room with people and saying, you know, we got a bunch of smart people in this room. Let's figure out our path forward. So the outcome and the, the effectiveness of this methodology, to me, is measured by that. Did we give them the information they needed to make a better decision or to better make a decision? Yeah, um, and I would add to that uh, like a similar point, which is, in general, looking at any research project, you're trying to assess if it's valid or not. It doesn't make sense to an average person. So you're presenting, this is my research question, this is my data, this is what I found. If it doesn't make sense, it's probably a problem there. You know, if you can explain it to somebody and they can follow along with, okay, I understand why you chose that, I understand why you tested that, I understand the results, it chances are you did a good job. But, um, and that's what the tool helps you do. It, it helps you ask yourself, does this make sense? And a lot of times you're working through and it doesn't make sense. And it helps you adjust it before you spend money uh, and uh, correct your logic and find out all the, the illogical decisions that you've made. So by the end, you can present it you know, in, in five minutes or 10 minutes and people can understand what you did and follow it. And if you're losing people or they don't understand, chances are there is an actual logical problem with, with the way you did your project. Just from a, a, a separate question or perspective for you guys, as far as finding the ROI, the type of work of doing this statistical analysis, a lot of ways is starting with that end goal. So our goal is to increase customer satisfaction X. So you can then go and do the analysis, and then afterwards you can keep, continue to keep track of it and that'll show your ROI, whether or not that research helped drive better decisions than, say, sitting around in the boardroom, but like you have been doing for the last three years. Um, so that's one way to start tracking that and kind of build a business case to do this sort of thing more often. Yeah, well, I wouldn't throw it out there as one, you know, as a measure of effectiveness or one of the outcomes of the methodology. I definitely think along those lines of what this methodology does is it also because what happens to us in a business setting is things seldom ever go perfect. You start a project and you're going to go look at something and then the team starts shifting. So halfway through a project when you get a new stakeholder, you get a new team member, this methodology and the approach that we take gives you all of the background you need to sit down and get them up to speed. Or when you get done with this project and you want to see if there's been, you know, an influence. It, you know, we did this analysis and we decided you know, from the, this analysis we're going to take these two approaches. We've done that now for a year. Let's come back and look at the analysis. Do we see the results that we expected to see? Whereas in most of the times when you do a benchmarking project or you just use descriptive stats, what you do is you end up with a report maybe a, a year later. You say, okay, so now 
82% of the people report doing X, Y, or Z versus 83%. Is that a relationship? Has that really, has that gone up or is that just, you know, the nature of the group that we collected data from this time? This gives you more definitive answers to be able to say you had an influence, you didn't have an influence, and it gives you a repeatable record of what you did so you can replicate it the exact same way every time. Yeah. Okay. Um, can you share more information about the statistical thresholds placed in order to perform this analysis? For example, how did you determine the likelihood of being in the top quartile if you used strategy X? Um, I'll take that one. Um, so in terms of defining top quartile <laughs> you know, and top performer, we just defined a top performer on each metric as whether they were in the top quartile of that metric, so that's pretty straightforward. Um, beyond that, it, get, it gets into the actual statistical modeling that we did. So it goes back to the research question. The type of question that we had determined the type of statistical modeling and testing that we did. Um, and then the results of that is what we shared, which is at the end of that type of modeling, which is um, MLE was the type of analysis we did, you end up with predicted probabilities that tell you the likelihood that that, that strategy had an impact on cycle time. And that was what we were able to compare and, and see, well, which strategy had the largest impact, which one has the highest likelihood. Um, that's pretty much. Okay. Anybody else have anything to add to that? The only thing I'll add to that is that those are variables, at least the, the first part of what Christy was talking about is how you define thresholds. Those are variables that you can, uh, you can set and you can change. And they may, it may make sense for them to change based on what you're trying to look at. In some instances, you may want to say, I want to look at the top 10% as you know, my threshold as opposed to the top quartile. But you set that as you're setting up the project and as you're going through that again. The, the, the thing that I think separates this methodology from other methodologies is that you have those conversations. At the front. Yeah. yeah, you have them in the beginning. You document those and it's repeatable. So the next time you do the project, if you do it again, to see the impact, you don't have to remember what you did and say, oh, did we use quartile and now yeah. we're using decile or the top 5% or the top whatever percent? Um, you document that. and different processes may warrant having different thresholds. It just all depends on what you're, yeah. what you're trying to measure. But just having the conversation is the first step to making sure that you have that defined. And you can, you know, if, if you're not sure, you can ask people that understand process. You can have the conversation within your team. It, a lot of times you come down to, you know, what, what measure do we want to be held to? Do we want to be the top quartile or do we want to be the top 10%? Uh, so those are all things that can be set, evaluated. And you can, you know, when you get into the, the testing, you can, you can vary those things and see what the influence would be and how it changes things. Those are all that, that iterative process that you can go through once you get started and start having the, the conversations about just what are you trying to go understand. And that, that starts with the research questions uh, mm -hmm. for the project. Yeah. And I think that also brings up that point of why you want to have such a close relationship between the SME and the analysts because those types of questions, you don't just want somebody who doesn't just know the numbers to just decide things. You want an SME who says, well, in our world, we are interested in top quartile or we're interested in top 10%. So you want both sets of information to be there as you make decisions on the project. Because right? they're going to be the ones that are most likely to realistically see what, what's the stretch for. 
Yeah. If you've been performing at bottom quartile and your stretch hold is to be in the top 10% in two years, kind of unrealistic. And they've got that information in that context. So right. Right. Decision. right. Yeah, or they can at least find out if it is doable or not. Okay. Uh, so our final question today is, how did you differentiate between no plans to implement and plans to execute but not implement in the cost research questions? Since the organization has not made any active effort implementing any strategy, does it justify the increased probability in the results? Um, I'll take that one or I'll do the first pass. <laughs> On that one, um, Again, as, it, as we're seeing with all the questions, it goes back to your research questions. You know, it, it always goes back to what do you want to know? And then the testing and the modeling and all of that will come and validate what is it that you want to know. So on this particular project, uh, what we wanted to see was for all those different levels, is there any type of difference that we can see? Separately, if you wanted to just, you could create a new variable where you collapse categories and you say, implementation versus not and just have two categories and you want to see it that way. So it, it just always comes back to what do you want to know and then you can tailor your analysis and your modeling to address the question that you have. Yeah, and it comes back to the nature of the data set because I remember us having this conversation going into the webinar no and, and it comes down that we had the conversation of how to display this data because it the point of the graphic that this person is talking about is that for all of the strategies, as you went through the progression that was used in the data collection instrument of, you know, we don't have a strategy, uh, we're thinking about implementing one but haven't, we've implemented one but it's, you know, it's decentralized or we've implemented it enterprise-wide. So there were these four variables that, that all of the organizations answered questions on. And just by the nature of people participating in the survey, there are going to be people that say, we haven't done anything, but that, that you, you saw that there was benefit, the graphic was showing, oh, they're getting benefit by not doing anything, and that wasn't the case. What the, the point of that graphic was that as you do more work and as you start even thinking about implementing a strategy, you're going to start seeing benefits and lower cost or likelihood to be a top performer. It's nowhere near the same level of magnitude that if you've got uh, this strategy implement, implemented enterprise-wide. So that's what we're trying to show in that graphic. But when you look at it, you just see the, that you would assume that the likelihood to be in the top quartile or the top performing category for having done nothing you would <laughs> think would be zero. But that's just not the case in the real world. People are going to have benefits, and there are going to be people that make it into the top. You know, they have a chance of being a top performer even if they're not doing anything. It could be driven by market forces, how they go to market, any number of things. But the point of that was there's a very big difference between doing nothing, thinking about it, and having it done enterprise-wide. Is that it? No other insights? I don't have any more knowledge to share. knowledge, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, um, thanks again to the three of y'all for your time today. Um, if anybody wants to reach out to any three of these individuals about what they talked about today, what they talked about on the webinar, or just any other kind of general question, um, I'll give you their emails here. Ron's is rwebb at apqc.org. Christie's is c-a-r-r-c-a-r-o-o-p-a. Christy, what's your email address? <laughs> C-A-R-O-O-P-A-L-A -O -O at APQC.
HollyHoke.org. Great. Thanks. And Holly's is H-L-Y-K-E-H-O-G-L-A-N-D at APQC.org. The level of complicated. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Um, if you um, want to download APQC's PCF, they talked about briefly um, today on the podcast and on the webinar, you can go to www.apqc.org um, slash PCF, uh, and the website, of course, is apqc.org. So again, thanks for participating today. Thanks for listening in. Um, as always, we appreciate your time, and we hope to see you guys on the next podcast. Thanks a lot. Have a great day.